what is going to be our perspective on debt once this is all over is not clear. Interest rates, the Fed today said interest rates are going to be held low out until the end of 2023. So basically, I'm going to say it's free money. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. Hey guys, thank you for being here on the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. I'm excited to have you. I'm super excited that you chose to spend time with me here on this show. There's a lot of places you could be right now, a lot of places that want your time, and you're with me, and that's super cool. So thank you for doing that. As always, guys, I'm bringing you uh, an interview. I'm bringing you a discussion today that I think is going to be eye-opening and huge for you. We talk about a lot of different things, but among them, raising capital, which is absolutely should be a focus of yours if it's not. And uh, the, the gentleman I have on today spent 25 years in the high-tech industry while traveling extensively for his job. Uh, he realized that the lifestyle uh, that he had wasn't for him or his family, and he moved into real estate full-time because he was just, as we talk about in the interview, back and forth to Japan like every other day, just crazy. And now he's having the time of his life, leveraging and accumulating businesses, learning and applying his skills in the world of investing. Uh, he specializes in the development of new construction, multifamily apartments, assisted living, industrial, and workforce housing in several markets across North America. He is a podcaster, a speaker, and frequent guest on radio and television programs. And his name is Victor Menashe. Without any further ado, I give you Victor. All right, Victor, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate you agreeing to do this and taking the time. I'm excited to talk to you. Great to be here. Thank you, thank you. So uh, like we were saying off off, uh, off mic here, you just have a wealth of background information and, and experience and things, and there's a million ways we can go with this. But why don't we start off and let's introduce the, the audience to you a little bit deeper, give them a sense of your background, where you come from, how you got into this industry and, and uh, kind of what, what your business looks like now. But let's just go way back and, and dial it back and talk about how it all got started. Sure. So my pathway into real estate investing and development is definitely not the typical career path. I started out my career as a microprocessor designer, uh, designing chips that were initially used in telecom systems. I was responsible for the central office uh, uh, switching equipment at Nortel Networks. And so for about a decade, 52% of the phone calls in North America went through a chip that I designed. Wow. And I was responsible for uh, the hardware development in that carrier networks division. And uh, rose up through the ranks of that company, uh, took another company public, spent most of my career in microprocessor development, uh, one form or another. I've got chips in the seatback displays on most Airbus aircraft. So if you ever watch movies on, on the plane, that's probably my chip you're interacting <laughs> Which with. I think we all have. So that's, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And we've, uh, I've got chips in uh, Panasonic multifunction printers, Canon printers, Hewlett Packard storage network, Cisco Wi-Fi access points, Apple Airport Express, uh, all kinds of different weird and wonderful applications all over the world. Even a pachinko patchy slot machine in Japan in partnership with Sammy Sega and NVIDIA. Uh, so no all kidding. kinds of different things. Wow. That's enduring because yeah. I'm assuming you've not been in that industry for quite some time. So that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. And I exited that business at about 2009, 2010 timeframe. 
I was traveling back and forth to Japan. Every two weeks, we were building a new cellular network in Japan. And that 13-hour flight to Tokyo every few days was just killer. I mean, it was just burning me out physically, emotionally. (laughs) It just wasn't the right thing for me. It wasn't the right thing for my family. So I literally resigned my position as VP of engineering. We were building chips for you know, uh, wireless data sets and handsets and uh, PC data cards and uh, decided to take a hard left turn in my career and move into the world of real estate investing on a full-time basis. Probably not the recommended way to do it, by the way. (laughs) I probably should have taken a bit more gradual transition. But uh, here I am uh, more than a decade later today, now doing mostly new development, almost all new construction, some existing assets, but almost all new construction. So we're focused very much towards the development side, especially ground up development and love the creative part of it. I love the community building aspect of it. And we're just having lots of fun. Well, let me ask you this. As a guy who was in the tech industry, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, from what I can tell, I have I, I was on your show. Now you're on mine. Super smart guy. You went into real estate. You dove in full time. What assurances did you have in your mind? And I know there's nothing's guaranteed in life, obviously. But what did did you do? Any anal? I mean, how much did you know it was going to work, and how much of it was let's just jump it off, jump off the you know the cliff and build the wings on the way down? No, there was a lot of analysis that went into it okay. at the beginning. Uh, what I was naive about was knowing how hard it would be, uh, all the different things that could go wrong. It looked pretty simple, pretty formulaic, yeah, and. And there's elements of it that are, but honestly, every single project is a little bit different. Even the ones that you design and architect to look identical to the next, there's always some twist, always something new. And it's really a matter of building those small systems. And when I was in the tech industry, we had a lot of systems, a lot of process. And what I discovered is that it's one thing to operate in an environment, in a very highly structured environment, where that structure has already largely been predefined. It's quite another to invent that structure from a blank sheet of paper. Um, it's not it's not the same activity at all. And uh, so I went through a process of learning and relearning things that supposedly I already knew, uh, which was very humbling, of course. Uh, to to say, well, shoot, Victor, you already knew how to do that. Well, how come you had to relearn it? That's eesh, that's <laughs> just really horrible. Um, and yet, I apparently I had to walk that that journey. Yeah. And what I what attracted me to real estate in particular, if I compare it, let's say, to the tech industry, where it, you, you very quickly get to what's called consolidation. You get to that either the monopoly or the duopoly or maybe three dominant players. Yeah. You know, you look at most major industries, you you get down to that kind of uh, uh, market consolidation. Certainly, we have it today in cell phones between Samsung and Apple. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You you know, it's not uh, it's not like the fifty or hundreds of players, but in real estate. There is not consolidation. You don't have a single dominant player anywhere in the world. That's right. Not only that, people will invest with you. They will give you capital uh, on on a level that they wouldn't in the tech industry. I mean, imagine for a moment, if I came to you as an investor and I said, I've got an idea for a new chip and I need $50 million before I can do anything in that business. And maybe in year four, I'll give you your money back. And maybe by year five, I'll make you a profit. Are you lining up for that investment? Yeah, no, no. And, and unfortunately, that's the reality of that business. So unless you have the depth of pockets of an Intel or a Samsung or an Apple or a Qualcomm, where you can le- really leverage it in volume, 
or unless there's some other reason to do it, it maybe it's a low volume chip, but you know, maybe there's the government behind it and it's going in a satellite or in sure. a space station or something yeah. like that. And so at that point, the volume doesn't matter. They're just going to pay whatever it costs. Unless you are in a very high volume business and you're really assured that you're going to get that volume to get the money back, it's a very tough business. It's yeah. a really tough business. I'll give you a simple example, not to go too deep on this. Okay. There's a company out of Israel called Surf. And they were the first company to come up with a single chip GPS solution. They literally ended up dominating the market. They got Garmin, Raytheon, TomTom. Uh, Tom. They just owned it, the whole market. Okay. And all it took was Intel to threaten that they were going to integrate that GPS function in the notebook chipset. And it literally killed them overnight. They didn't even have to build it. They just had to threaten to build it. And people said, oh, yeah, Intel will just swallow them up. <laughs> And so here was a company that had swung for the fences. They'd gone public. They were public on the NASDAQ. They had uh, 180 million cash in the bank. Um, No, they had 225 million cash in the bank. They had a market cap of 180 million. So the enterprise value was less than their cash position. They were actually worth less than their cash. Wow. Um, And so I looked at that. I said, "How, how, how can anybody... Yeah. realistically go into that business and not survive three generations. Yeah. Even after hitting it out of the park. That's crazy. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's like saying I want to win the lottery when I grow up. It doesn't, you know, it made no sense. No, no. So I, okay. Having said that and knowing what I know about you to this point, um, two things. Uh, Number one, did you, how did how did real estate hit your radar? You kind of said you you discovered real estate and you kind of made that move, but what was the current like? What happened? How how what was the story there? I, I read Robert Kiyosaki's book. Really, and that did it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, it, that it, it, op- been- it opened my eyes. Yeah. I, I had previously I had some smaller forays into it beforehand, okay. and but hadn't really taken it seriously. I didn't really understand it deeply, and and. Uh, that little purple book uh, really got under my skin, and um, you know, today now, you know, Robert and I are friends, which is kind of cool. How wild! And uh, he's he's the consummate teacher. Uh, love the fact that we usually get to spend time together a couple times a year, and uh, he's just a, a very deep thinker. Um, he's a complex individual as a human being, but he's a very deep thinker, and he's very. Uh, very driven to take things to the very bottom and really understand things at, at a at a core level. He's not interested in superficial things, and so he challenges me enormously. Um, and and I love that. I love the fact that he challenges me. I mean, it it you know he's like a, a drilling machine that just goes right through your heart some days. And you go, oh shoot, Robert, man, it's uh, yeah. But but that's how you grow. Yeah, having folks like that in your life, uh, whether it's the great Robert Kiyosaki or someone else who challenges you is huge. You know, I think people, you know, it's cliche, but you know, if you stay in your comfort zone and your little bubble, like hopefully you enjoy the way your life is now and what you're achieving. Cause that's all you'll ever get. Right. You need to be challenged and, and pushed outside of that zone. So wh- I, now I got what got you into it. And frankly, uh, that book, I mean, rich dad, poor dad got a lot of people into real estate. It was a very powerful, like you said, little small purple book, but it was super powerful. And a lot of people were super inspired by that. So that's, you know, that's, um, that's a, something I hear a lot with, with entrepreneurs in real estate. When you first moved into the real estate space, now I know you're doing development and things like that. What, what was the first move into real estate? What, what were you focused on? 
So even today, I'm not a real estate guy per se, even though that's almost everything that I'm doing. I really took a business approach. I'd spent my last couple of roles, apart from you know running engineering organizations, doing a lot of business development, and so really took a business perspective. Now, I live in Ottawa, Canada, our nation's capital, which is a little bit of a unique market, probably very much like Washington, D.C., where we have a bunch of sub-markets that are a little bit different from the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. We have parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officers, government contractors coming through the core of the downtown on a medium-term basis because the government spends money in six-month increments. And so I saw a need to fulfill, uh, to supply product into that sub-market. The 12-month unfurnished lease is useless to those folks. Airbnb didn't exist at the time. And even a short-term rental isn't quite the same thing. They have a housing allowance. At the time, it was 1800 a month. And 3600 a month in an all-suite hotel wasn't going to cut it because yep. it was above the housing allowance. So the question was, serving that particular sub-market, what product could I deliver that's of an executive suite quality at that 1800 a month price point? And is there a business there? And so I approached it backwards from that perspective and said, here's a need. Can I go fulfill that? What's the profit margin? And I really took a business approach to it. And that's how I got into the business. So I started buying one-bedroom condos within a four-block radius of Parliament, Mm. delivering them as fully furnished executive suites. I was always full. And I was getting a third more rent for basically the cost of furnishing these units. Right. That business case works all day long. Do you, are you still involved in that or is that business? Nope. Been, okay. It was a good business. It was a good business, but it wasn't a great business. Okay. So I then looked at what was happening in the United States post 2008, where, and I saw that really as the opportunity of a lifetime. Little did we know then that we'd be facing another similar size opportunity right here in the year 2020. <laughs> yeah. But I saw that as an opportunity of a lifetime. So I, I sold that portfolio and redeployed the capital. Uh, mostly in U.S. investments. Oh, okay. That that was actually going to be my question. So, yeah. um, y- you mentioned it, and and I there's a lot. I have a lot of questions in my head right now. But you you just mentioned it um, that uh, you saw this opportunity and what was going on in 2008. And little did you know that similar would again. I, I always say this when I ask the question. I understand nobody has a crystal ball. You're not you know here to predict the future. But in your business, in your opinion. What do you see happening in our, we'll say the U.S., since that's where you're doing your business, in the U.S. economy, what do you see happening in the real estate market? Like, what are you preparing for? What do you think could be a likely scenario that will play out? Right now, we have, and I haven't looked in the last couple of weeks, but as of a couple of weeks ago, there were about four and a half million single-family residences in uh, some form of financial distress. That's not quite the level that it was post-2008, but it's only happened in a few months, let alone what was accumulated over the span of four years yeah. post-2008. So we're already half the way there in a very, very short time period. We have a very high percentage of commercial properties, either in forbearance or in some form of distress. If you look, for example, at the hotel industry, uh, depending on the market, I think the average right now is about 24% of hotels are uh, in some form of default on their notes. Yeah. If you're in the CMBS market in New York, 38% of hotels, 66% of hotels in Houston are in default. Uh, you can go on down the list. So there will be some good assets coming on the market for pennies on the dollar. Yeah. 
uh, distress. So what happens in a downturn? Um, debt gets repriced. Yep. Uh, there's a transfer of wealth. Uh, there's usually some form of fiscal stimulus. We're seeing all of those things. Yeah. Now, a lot of those have been artificially held in a state of, I don't know, uh, in some kind of um, uh, hibernation with this moratorium on foreclosures, moratorium on evictions. Everyone's trying to freeze all the chess pieces on the board so that they don't move, hoping that we can come out of this in an orderly fashion. But at the same time, they're not going to be able to print their way out of this forever. And we, at some point, need to return to normal so that, you know, if someone defaults, there's consequences. We can't just Say, okay, all bets are off. You, everyone can default and there's no consequence. Right. That can't persist. So at some point, uh, there will be a lot of good assets coming in the market in a short time period. In a yeah. short time period. Okay. Well, let me ask you that then. Let me just push you a little further. You say sure. a short time period. What, what do you anticipate that time period being? It all comes down to how the market decides. I, I, when I say short time period, I think it'll happen over a six-month period from the point where everyone says go. And the, the, the question is, how are the creditors going to deal with it? Are they going to be looking for liquidation? Are they going to be looking for a liquidity event? Are they going to be simply looking to do some kind of um, loan modification? Is, is, the, is the, the back interest going to get priced into the principal? How is this all going to get dealt with? It's right. not clear. Yeah. You know, you've got a lot of major companies that uh, are have so much of their business based on debt. And it's not just real estate. It's all over the economy. And look, Hertz rent a car. Okay, Hertz is in bankruptcy, but it's not just Hertz. I mean, Avis and Enterprise, they're not in bankruptcy yet, yeah. but they have all the same issues. Their, yep. their structure's not that different. Yep. So whenever you have a, a, a business model that's based on the assumption that you're going to be able to feed the debt based on revenue, and the assumption is the revenue is going to stay uniform, uh, to service that debt, you have some level of vulnerability. And we, we're just seeing all those points of vulnerability now. Is it going to change the way we approach debt? Are we going to be looking to do higher ratios of equity versus debt in order to protect businesses? Yep. A very good friend of mine built a Hilton property in Belize. Now, he built it 100% out of equity, not because he wanted to, because he couldn't get any debt in Belize. Yeah. So, but fortunately, he's not going to lose his property, right? Because it's one hundred percent equity funded. Yeah. So, you know, our what is going to be our perspective on debt once this is all over is not clear. Uh, you know, I'm actually working on a podcast episode right now on precisely this very question. Interest rates. The Fed today said interest rates are going to be held low out until the end of 2023. So basically, I'm going to say it's free money. Now it's yeah. not quite free, but let's say let's say if if interest rates from the lenders are sub two percent, and let's say that inflation is running two to three percent, well now it is kind of free money. Yeah, right yeah. because the get the debt's getting devalued faster than you're paying the interest on it. Correct. So what do you do? Do you, do you simply refinance existing debt into lower price debt? Yes, absolutely. That's something you definitely want to do. Yeah. Are you going to go load up on more debt? Well, maybe. If so, for what? Are you going to do it for things that are a sure thing where you've got excess demand and it's very clearly demonstrable demand? Or are you going to go out there borrowing money for things that are a little bit speculative because the money's so cheap? Right. Right. Tough questions, it's right? T- it is tough questions. It, you know, 
Yeah, it is very tough questions. And it's it's really going to be interesting. And I, I would like to pivot a little bit into your current model, because I'm real curious, a guy like you clearly has, has a lot of information. You're doing you're doing new builds. Can you talk about what it is that you do exactly? What what kind of sure. new builds are you doing? And I'm I'm curious how how you're preparing yourself because when I think new builds, I just think residential, maybe condo, maybe apartments, but new builds got kind of hurt in the last downturn. Like that wasn't that wasn't not necessarily a great place to be in the middle of these new builds. So I'm wondering what you're doing, if it's different sure. and how you plan on, on attacking that situation. I'm a big believer in the laws of supply and demand. Uh, it's one of those laws of nature, if you will, that often people get uh, confused about. They simply look at the demand side of the equation. And they often ignore the supply side. So I want to see those market conditions where there is a sustained mismatch between demand and supply. And if those market conditions persist and I see that I can fulfill that need, then I consider investing. So we see, for example, right now, um, and well, I'll give you an example. We've been, we've been very active in the Philadelphia market for, gosh, close to a decade. And Philly, by comparison, you know, it's within a couple hours in New York City. It's in that corridor between uh, New York and Washington. Uh, it's a less expensive market in between two very high-priced markets. We've seen, and Philly has some rough areas, like it really does. Sure. Uh, so we developed a strategy in Philadelphia that we call buy on the line, move the line. And so what is that line? That line is the line where on one side, you've got a hot, gentrified neighborhood, you've got coffee shops, you've got people walking their dog, uh, you know, you've got the art gallery a couple of blocks away, and you've got expensive cars in the driveway, go two blocks too far, and you're in the hood. Yep. And almost every city in America has that. Yep. So wherever your listeners are sitting, listening to this conversation, they can visualize very clearly that line. And for us in Philadelphia, that line was in North Philly, very close to Temple University. In fact, there were three lines, one line moving west from Temple, one line moving north from Center City from the Fairmount District, and another line moving east from Brewery Town. Eventually, about a block a year, gobbling up this area that was kind of a rough area. Mm -hmm. So we would simply buy right on that line, redevelop it, and now the line's on the other side of our property. Now, if you just do it once or twice, nobody cares, nobody notices. Yep. But if you put a little scale behind it, the market says, oh, the line has moved. I get it. Nice. And so we're essentially playing a large developer's game on a small scale, but putting a little bit of scale behind it. Yeah. So we probably, over the span of four or five years, acquired, I don't know, 85 properties within about a 10-block radius. Okay. So that gave us enough scale that when we developed new product, we were setting our own comps. And... When you're developing new product that's just on the wrong side of the line, well, there are no comps in the hood. Mm -hmm. So the only place you're going to get comps for new product is on the good side. You may not get 100 cents on the dollar, but you'll probably get 95, 98 cents of the dollar in valuation, but you're buying the land for pennies on the dollar. Right. So you're able to get a tremendous lift by buying right. And yep. now oftentimes these lines are arbitrary. If the line is a municipal boundary, if it's a school district, if it's a freeway, it's going to be a hard line to move. Yeah. But if the line is arbitrary, you can move it. Yeah. And we're able to create a lot of value that way. Now, now we're talking single family homes here, right? Is no, no, no. Like? We're talking multifamily. Oh, multifamily. Okay. okay, okay. So we would do land assemblies, uh, you know, and and some, we we did we spent a fair bit of time 
getting uh, zoning variances to try and get higher density. That was effective, but it was very time-consuming. It was slow. Mm-hmm. We found that uh, it was better, actually, to build by right. Whatever the zoning code allowed, that's what we would build. We got more efficient. We were able to do more volume. Mm-hmm. We had less. We had more certainty yeah. by doing it that way. And uh, simply by putting some scale behind it. So, you know, if we got three properties together that are 16 feet wide, well, that was probably going to be nine units because that's what the zoning code allowed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's what we would do. Okay. And we were getting, if, on the good side of the line, we were you'd be getting rents of, I don't know, 16, 1800 a month. On the wrong side of the line, you might be getting eight or 900 a month. So we, we would build that new product. We would build into our pro forma that we would get, I don't know, twelve, thirteen hundred a month for that new product. And then we were shocked to discover that we were getting sixteen hundred a month. I was like, oh wow, we're wow. getting great valuations. Now the the key for us, the exit strategy was to make sure that we capped our investment at seventy to seventy-five percent of what we expected to be the appraised value for mm-hmm. the as-built product. Yeah. At that point, you can refinance uh, and recover 100% of your initial investment. Yeah. Uh, so you're basically doing an equity pull. You're returning all the capital to your investors. You're paying back the construction loan. And now you're into permanent financing with 70% loan-to-value ratio, fairly conservative mm. debt-to-equity ratio, but no cash tied up in the product. Yeah. So now at that point, you've got that proverbial no money down deal, the infinite return that everyone everyone is after. When you have that, then you're sitting on a a machine to print money. And there's no reason to sell because what are you going to sell that's going to be better than that? Right. Yeah, it's crazy. It's almost like a a, a big scale version of like the Burr strategy, if you're familiar, like buy, yeah. renovate, re, you know, re, re, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. It's like just on a little bit bigger scale, but that's it's on a little bit bigger scale. That's how we started, frankly. Yeah. We didn't jump into that right from the get go. But w- when we're buying on the line, we're buying highly, dist- I say, physically distressed properties. Mm-hmm. So what we would do is we would demolish the interior of these buildings. We would keep the stone and brick facade and put a new building on the inside. Okay. We were buying properties for 20, 30% of new construction. So just the fact that we got the structure for free, we got the land at a, at a good price meant that we could put a new building on the inside. And we went through a period of four or five years where there was almost no new construction. There's a lot of pent up demand. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden we were still building quote unquote new product in a historic with with a historic facade, yeah. all kinds of beautiful things like you can do, um, you know, interior brick, um, uh, you know, little brick. Uh, I'm not sure what the word is. Uh, little outcroppings of brick inside that just look gorgeous yeah. that you can't do in new construction. Right. And uh, we're just developing great great product, and it was literally flying off the shelf. That's awesome. So that's how we started. It, it was just organic, and so the stuff from there. Mm-hmm to doing ground-up new construction in an infill setting was a small step. The step from there to doing ground-up new construction in a greenfield situation where there was no infrastructure was a small step. We didn't jump there all in one step. We took a a bunch of smaller incremental steps. Which is is smart and and probably the right way to do it. So real quick, I want to move on because I know you have a a book that I want to talk about called Magnetic Capital. But before we do that, one quick question. 
in in your business and in, in what in this evolution that you've had since being this tech guy, not in real estate, to where you are now, what's the single biggest thing that has surprised you or maybe been a challenge in, in what you've been able to accomplish so far? Like what was what was something that maybe you just didn't didn't foresee and you had to figure it out? There've been so many. One of the things that um, I, I've it really comes down to developing relationships with the very best people in the world. And when you see what they're doing, you can't, you can't just read about it in a book. You all, you have to talk to them directly and gain the insight firsthand. And when you do, you all of a sudden, it opens your eyes to what's possible. I had a conversation. Um, I did a bunch of events. This is probably eight years ago. We did a bunch of events with, uh, with Donald Trump's son, Eric, at the Trump Winery in Charlottesville, Virginia. And Eric was talking about a bunch of projects that he and his family did where they literally bought land. They bought the property for about two cents on the dollar. And I was saying, it's just, that doesn't happen. It's impossible. <laughs> but it's, it's a little bit like Roger Bannister running the four-minute mile. Yeah. No one had done it. Yeah. And then within a year of him running the four-minute mile, like a dozen people did it. Yep. All of a sudden, because they knew it was possible. Yep. And so it was that process of just becoming aware of what's possible opened my eyes to seeing those opportunities. And we've done a few. We wouldn't have seen them. You know, it'd yeah. be like walking down, you know, down the street and you, you look down and you, there's a $1,000 bill on the ground. You don't believe it. Yeah. You, don't pick it. you don't pick it up because it can't be possible. Right. And uh, now my eyes are open to those types of opportunities and and we see them. That's amazing. I love that. So Magnetic Capital, your book, let's talk about that. What what is it about uh, specifically? Like give people an idea of what's covered in the book. And then just curious, I'm always curious when people write books, why they wrote them. Because I've just recently written one myself. I know the work involved in that. Um, So what what possessed you and what, what is it about? I raised a lot of money in the tech industry. And what I discovered when I moved into the world of real estate investing, I, I relearned the process of raising capital. And when I relearned it, it was like, oh, wait a minute, this is exactly the same. And when raising money is easy, it's because there's a bunch of elements that just sort of naturally seem to fall into place. And when it's difficult, it's because one or more of those elements are missing. And it doesn't matter whether you're trying to raise money for a technology startup, whether you're trying to raise money for uh, to flip a, you know, a, a 1950s bungalow. Doesn't matter. The process is the same. And it really comes down to five principles. And I found that nobody was talking about it. You know, most of the works that were out there on raising capital were these fairly academic pieces. Yeah. They weren't written from the perspective of a practitioner. Yeah. And. It's like reading how to how to swim by. It's like learning how to swim by reading a textbook. You've got to get in the water. You've got to approach it from a practical perspective. And so I, I saw a void in the marketplace, and I just wanted to address that void in the market. So, that, so that's why I wrote the book. Okay. And what I saw was that when the five these five principles were in place, raising money was very very straightforward. So I'll go through them very very briefly. Thank you. Number one, you've got to have relationship. And I'm not talking about networking. Uh, Networking is using people. Nobody likes to be used, especially people with money. So it's really about relationship building. 
And if you don't have relationship at, at the foundation, it's going to be very difficult to raise capital. So it really starts with that. Uh, number two, you've got to have, you've got to establish trust. And it's not just about being an honest, ethical person. Trust is a psychological contract and it's got a lot of layers to it. It's questions like, can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to hire the right team? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? Can I trust you with my money? Can I trust you, uh, you know, to communicate if there's a problem? All of these different things. And if any one of them are missing, it starts to erode the trust. And when the trust is there, decisions happen quickly. People will say, okay, I know you, Victor. I trust you. All right, let, I see the opportunity. I understand it. Let's go. You know, if the trust is missing, it's like, well, I don't know. We probably need two to three weeks of due diligence. The trust isn't there yet. So it's really understanding that. Number three, you've got to have a track record. Now, you might be scratching your head saying, well, I'm new. I don't have a track record. How um, how am I going to raise any money if I don't have a track record? How am I going to get a track record if I can't raise any money? I'm stuck. Yeah. And you might, that might be true. Or maybe you're thinking about it the wrong way. This is not like your grade three math test where if you work with someone else, you're cheating. So (laughs) this is a team sport. So so for example, my partner in our development company, my partner, Bob, he's built 10,000 units so far in his career of apartments. Uh, So, and, And I've built quite a few myself. But when I go in front of a loan committee, and we're looking for a $30, $35 million non-credit or non-recourse construction loan, I push Bob up front and say, here's our experience base. Here's our, you know, here's our track record. Uh, And that just takes that off the table. So I'm borrowing a little bit of his credibility. And, and, you know, Bob and I talk every day and we're, you know, (laughs) we're a core team. So uh, it's legitimate. We're not just making it up. So you want to... Get people on your team that might be overqualified, yeah. Uh, so that you have that track record, yeah. I love because that. that's one of the things that people look for. They want to see that you know what you're doing. Yeah. It's not just you're a smart guy. You might be a smart guy, but inexperienced. That might not be good enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I love that. Then number four, you've got to have a compelling opportunity, and this is where most rookies start. They say, "I've got a deal, man. Have I got a deal for you? Here, you want a deal? You know." <laughs> Everyone's out there peddling deals, and it's never, almost never about the deal. So it really comes forth. And so what is compelling? Well, that's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. It's like asking, is the image on the magazine cover beautiful? Well, that's in the eye of the beholder. For one, their definition of beauty might be a medical office building at an 8% cap rate. For someone else, it might be a 100,000 square foot industrial building that's vacant next to an Amazon facility. Yeah. I don't know. It's, that's everyone's definition of, of yeah. beauty. So, uh, and then finally, the last item is you've got to have what I call alignment. And that is that match between the goals for the money and the goals for the project. And if it's, it's a little bit like... Uh, it's like the fit of a pair of shoes. You can go to the shoe store and you can see the most beautiful pair of shoes and gosh, it's your lucky day they're on sale. But if they don't fit, you're not a buyer. It doesn't matter how beautiful they are or how deeply discounted they are. And when we talk about shoes, it's clear everybody understands it. And then we talk about money and people get all confused and weird. It's exactly the same. So you've got to understand what the goals for the money are. And if the goals for the money and the goals for the project don't match, don't take the money. It's not going to work. 
And so the, under that category is about a dozen different criteria. And what you'll find is that the more sophisticated money are very clear on what their goals are. Yeah. They, they say, well, I'm looking to deploy money in a minimum of $5 million increments. It's got to be a certain rate of return. It's got to have a certain ta- tax consequence. I've got to be able to claim so much depreciation. Uh, I've got to have a certain control structure and on and on and on. And if one of those are not there, they're not going to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, rookie investors, they say, well, I want to make money. Just don't lose my money. Uh, and that's about it. Yeah. Uh, but more sophisticated investors are very clear on what they're looking for. Yeah. I like that. So I'm I'm looking at my notes here, and I just want to ask you because it's a it's a kind of a interesting. It's, <laughs> you you say you raise funds, but don't ask for money. What does yes. that mean? It's a small nuance, but it's it's critical. If I'm asking for money, there's a there's a power imbalance. The person with the money holds the power. Right. On the other hand, if I'm the linchpin. And I'm offering you the opportunity to collaborate with me on a project. That's a very different posture. Yeah. Yeah. Completely different. So I'm never asking for money. Yeah. I've got something that I believe to my very core is going to be interesting and compelling. Uh, It's going to serve a need in the marketplace. And uh, would you like to come along for the ride? Yeah. I've I've told people for years and it's the way you're saying it's more eloquent, but you cannot go into a situation where you're raising funds and appear to to need that person more than they need you, right? Like even if you right. have a great if you have a great opportunity for them or a great you know project that you're raising funds for, if you just so badly feel like you need their money, it's gonna it's just gonna emanate from you, and it's not yeah. attractive. It doesn't make people want to work with you. It's that de- that smell of desperation that that nobody wants, right? It, it, it nobody wants it in business. Nobody wants it in relationships. You know, you go to the bar and you're desperate to meet someone. It's just ugly. Nobody nobody wants yeah. to be with that person. So yeah. it's creepy. It. Yeah, I, I like that though. <laughs> it is creepy. Raise funds, don't ask for money. I love that. Love that. Love that. I yeah. want to ask you one more thing, and it's in my notes here. Um, and it, it's it's something that you talk about is um, good charitable cause, bad foundation. What what is what do you mean by that? I'm curious. Uh, sure, it's all about stewardship. It's all about stewardship. So um, it's it's not just so. Okay, when raising money for a charitable cause is no different than raising money for an investment. There's an investment of money, and there's a measured return. Now, this is just Victor's personal philosophy. You know, I'll probably get some people mad at me for saying this, but I would not personally choose to give money to an organization like the United Way. Nothing wrong with the United Way, except that I can't measure the impact of a dollar going in and a result at the other end. It's it's too they spread the money around like salt and pepper, and you cannot see the the a, a link between a dollar invested and an outcome. Right. It's too it's too diffused. Whereas if you uh, if you go out and you sponsor a family, a refugee family and uh, you know who are running away from some persecution and you get them set up, there's a very clear tangible outcome. Yeah. Uh, if you go out and you buy an ambulance and you donate it to the hospital, it's a very clear tangible outcome. Uh, so I, I'm a much I'm a big believer in having that very clear link between investment and return. 
And so you can have a very worthy cause, but if that if if the foundation isn't set up the right way, either because there's too much politics uh, miring the the foundation itself, and that often happens, sadly, uh, people go into these nonprofits because they you know they do it for because they want to make themselves feel good and yep. whatever, but they're not really there for the cause, they're there for their own self-serving purpose, then that tends to taint the foundation. So you, when you're looking to evaluate how you want to give, you want to look for those qualities. Is it is it a worthy cause? And there's thousands of worthy sure. causes. Sure. Uh, does it have those right elements where you can see the link between a dollar invested and the return? And then number three, uh, how is it being run? Yeah. That, that's that's what I'm, that's what I look for. I love it. Good advice. I like the way you think about that. I'm going to ask you one last question. I think this would be a good one to end on because I'm curious about this too. Invest like a billionaire, even if you're not. How do I invest like a billionaire, even if I'm not? What do billionaires do? They, if you want to be a billionaire, do what billionaires do. If you want to be broke, do what broke people do. Right. So what do billionaires do? They invest in a manner where they're very, they're very measured, they're very safe. They don't necessarily focus on maximum return on every single deal. They focus on safety. They focus on asymmetric risk. So they want tons, they want unlimited upside, and they want to be protected on the downside. Right. That's a critical one. That's a critical one. So, and by the way, I didn't always do this. Um, these days, I don't sign personal guarantees. Not because I'm, you know, I'm trying to hide anything or anything like that. I want that asymmetric risk. Right. You know, I, I want that. I want that risk profile to be skewed the right way, um, for me and yeah. for my yeah. investors as well. Yeah. Right? That's interesting. So, well, okay, I'm going to ask a follow up question because that's interesting. Do you feel like you are? I don't know. I don't want to ask this in a way that it's leading too bad. Do you think that hurts you? I guess to not sign personal guarantees, since a lot of a lot of institutions, a lot of people are going to want that. Have you had to walk away from from money that you could have raised because you won't sign a personal guarantee? It's been a struggle uh, because sometimes you know it's that last bit of money that's needed to get a project done. Have I signed personal guarantees? Yes. Um, I, I really don't like to. Okay. Um, and sometimes, yes, I, I have absolutely walked away. It, it's a difficult decision. Yeah. Uh, it's always a It's one of those risk decisions. If it's a small amount of money, sure. Okay. Yeah. You know, but, but for a large project, no. Um, and here's the way that, here's the posture. It's back to what we talked about before. If there's this power imbalance and you appear desperate, it doesn't work. It's not attractive. But if you structure the project in such a way that you say, you know what, this has got to be an on-recourse loan, but I will give you two guarantees. I'll give you uh, what's called a bad boy carve-out, meaning we guarantee not to commit fraud. So if there is fraud anywhere in the project, then it does become full recourse. And number two, we'll guarantee completion. So we'll make sure that there's sufficient reserves in the project, we'll guarantee completion, and even if there aren't sufficient reserves, we'll make sure that the reserves show up that are needed. So we guarantee completion. Now you're coming at it from a position of strength. Yeah. Yeah. I and like again, that. it's a different posture. Yep. Absolutely. 
Man, this is good stuff. I could talk to you literally all day. I really could. Um, but I'm going to be respectful of your time. Uh, and I want to kind of wrap this up. Before we do, I just want to uh, tell folks, I assume magnetic capital can be purchased on Amazon. Is there some other yes. way they can get that? Is that the way you'd rather? Yeah, that's, that, that's the best way. Okay. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, let's do that. And then make sure you guys go check that out. I'm going to go get my copy as soon as we're done here. And then, uh, Victor, how can people get a hold of you if they want to, if they're interested in finding out more about what you have going on? How can they get a hold of you? Uh, the best way is uh, directly through my website. I'm at victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. I'm also the host of the Real Estate Espresso podcast. Uh, when you have been a guest on the show, so uh, we had a great time together on the uh, Real Estate Espresso podcast. It's a daily show, seven days a week. It's your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. And so we'd love to have your listeners as well. It's a short form show, five minutes on the weekday, just me. And then the weekends are interviews with notable people from the world of real estate investing. Yeah. yeah. And guys, don't, don't, uh, don't miss what he just said here. It's, it's every day, which is cool. And it's five minutes, like boom, a little, like you said, a shot of espresso, very easy to fit in before you start or start listening to all your other podcasts that you listen to. Listen to this one first, uh, the, the, uh, Victor's podcast. And then on the weekends, they're, they're actually very short too. They're like 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Correct. Um, yeah. so it's just a really cool way to add a, a really, awesome and interesting podcast to the list of podcasts you listen to without feeling like you're adding a ton more. So uh, I love that. I did have a great time on your show. So thanks again for inviting me to that. Victor, this has been very, very fun and very educational for me. And I appreciate you taking the time. You're a busy guy. You have a lot going on. We all do. But uh, but thanks for agreeing to do this. I appreciate that. Well, Mike, great, great to be here and uh, great to share some time with you. And uh, we're kindred spirits. So uh, just great to make the connection and and spend some quality time together. Agreed. Thank you again. I appreciate it. And we will talk to you soon. Wow. Victor's a smart guy. I enjoyed talking to him. I, I just love talking to folks that, uh, you know, it's interesting. He came from the tech industry and I've interviewed a few people like that over the last couple of years. And they're, they're some of the smartest guys because they come into this industry and they have this wealth of, of, of knowledge in the way they do things. And you heard Victor talked about, talk about it. Uh, raising money, right? He, he knew how to raise money in the tech industry and came over here and it was really kind of the same thing. But, you know, he, he just approaches this from such an analytical, like business mind that it's really important for us to remember, yeah, you know, you can go out there and in ready, shoot, aim kind of a thing and jump off the cliff and build the wings on the way down. And that's that works for some folks and that's not always so bad, right? But having that analytical mind where, okay, I've got some momentum. Now, how do I parlay this into an actual business that is sustainable, that's looking for market trends and taking advantage of the market trends that are out there for maximum, you know, maximum uh, success for you and your investors and your family. Like, just a smart guy who gets it. And I, I just loved having him on. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I know I was taking notes like crazy. I'm going to grab that book. I wasn't kidding. I want to get uh, his book because I think uh, he's got some great insight on raising capital. So I'm into it. So if you guys listen, here's the thing. Victor didn't sit around and think about this. Like he went after it. He quit his job. He went all in. He started doing you know, new builds and all this, building this, this, this huge business he didn't sit around and talk about it and think about it and just do nothing, right? Like you have to get out there and take action. I didn't specifically ask him that, but I guarantee you a guy like that says, you've got to take action. Do your homework, measure, you know, measure tw uh, twice or well, measure once, cut once, measure twice, cut once, you know the saying. Anyways, 
get out there and go for it. You have to take some precautions, but then once you do, go after it aggressively and relentlessly. And I know that's what he does. He's a very mild-mannered guy, but he goes after it hard all the time. So get out there, get after it hard, make it happen. Make today the first day that you do something about what you want out of life. And let's see if you get it. All right, I'll talk to you next time. Okay, you're still there. You're still listening. That's awesome. And I really appreciate that. Now, hopefully it wasn't an accident. Hopefully you didn't leave the room and I'm just talking to an empty room right now. But assuming you're still there, I want to do something really, really cool for you. For a limited time, I want to give you a free digital download of my book, the entire book, Level Jumping. If you're a listener to the show, you know it just came out and it really details how I took my business from being like one where I was just doing a few deals a month, maybe one or two deals a month, to doing over 10 and sometimes 15 deals a month and over a hundred a year. And I went from doing very little profit to over a million dollars in profit. And I made that transformation in a 12-month period. And this book talks about what I did, the steps I took to transform my business and how you can too. So grab a free digital digital download and you can get that by texting the words just start as two words now just start to the number 55444 so text just start to 55444 i will send you a free digital download of my book it's the complete book there's nothing held back and that'll be completely yours just for making it to the end of the show and listening to me and i really really appreciate it guys so i want to do something nice for you i do this every once in a while at the end of shows and if you listen to the very end every once in a while i do a giveaway like this so hopefully you enjoy that go grab a free copy i hope you read it i hope you love it reach out let me know what you think all right guys talk to you next time